0: Got a phone call from the victim's register to tell me his classification had been changed to a B. He's a pedophile, he's a child murderer. Look back over his record, it'll horrify you. He came onto our property, he joined the search. We fed him. I mean, he's a horrible man. Why do you think he he needs to be in doing a course? What? He didn't do a course when he was out. I don't want to be sitting here with you. I really don't. I'm tired, I'm sad. I just want to, whatever life i got left, get on with it, with a bit of peace. And it makes me absolutely ashamed of this system, that they can't see them. I really don't care, and I am Ebony's mother, and it is up to me, not up to someone sitting on a board. I'm the one who lives with this every day. He stole my daughter, and I'm not having it. I'm not having him doing anything but thinking about what he did. I have to think about it every day, and so should he. I got a life sentence, and so did he.
1: Hi, guys. Welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thanks again for tuning in today, and we're just going to thank a few more of our Patreons. So a big thank you to Helen, Sarah, Diane, Julie, Elizabeth... Erin, Hannah, Kat, and I think Zarina. I think that's how you say it. Sorry Mm. if I've said that wrong. Um, We do have a few more to thank, but we've had quite a few, so we're just going to kind of say a few each week. So I think there's about five episodes sitting there now. Five or six, and we've definitely got the next one in the works that we've been talking about. Absolutely. And that's been a request, and it is for a fairly well-known case, so I think that should be interesting. Yeah, so for as little as just $1, you can have all those
2: episodes and have a listen. We just like people listening, so, Mm -hmm. yeah, feel free to absolutely do that. And thank you to everyone who's...
1: Yeah, thank you so much to everyone who's joined, and we'll make sure we keep getting through the thank yous, because, yeah, you guys have been awesome joining up and supporting us. Yeah, thank you. Um, And with that, I will pass you over to Bill to talk about today's case. Thanks, Harry.
2: Today we are discussing the 1992 murder of a nine-year-old schoolgirl, Ebony Simpson. The Simpson family consisted of mother Christine, father Peter, two sons, Zach and Tasman, and beloved daughter Ebony. The family had moved to New South Wales country town Bargo 11 years before because they loved the lifestyle for raising children. Peter and Christine had bought and restored a run-down farmhouse and it was now a beautiful home set amongst the trees. Bargo is a small country town approximately 100 kilometers southwest of Sydney, surrounded by farmland and bush. That day, Christine was running late to pick up Ebony from her bus stop after school. She and her husband, Peter, had gotten delayed in traffic. Christine called the home phone
1: to check on the children to see if they had arrived home safely. 15-year-old Zach answered the phone. Christine wondered if Zach had met Ebony at her bus stop, which was just 100 metres down the road from his own. He told her that his bus had actually taken a different route that day and had arrived late to its stop, so he hadn't gone down to see if Ebony was there. Christine was immediately on edge and she told him, go back to the bus stop on your bike immediately and wait for me. We're coming now. Christine expressed her concerns to Peter that something had happened to Ebony. Peter reasoned with his wife that Ebony was probably just hanging out with a friend. He was confident that she was fine, but still drove quickly towards home. Reportedly, in the lead-up to this day, Ebony had been trying to negotiate with her mother to let her walk home from the bus stop by herself. Christine wasn't comfortable with this and still wanted to pick Ebony up. When the couple got to the house, Christine reportedly scanned her eyes over the veranda, searching for Ebony's shoes, but they weren't there. She yelled to Peter to call the police as she left to search for her daughter. When Peter called the police, he was disappointed by the fact that they didn't seem to take his daughter's disappearance very seriously. They did end up sending someone out. I think also
2: because such a short time had passed, it makes sense that they weren't super concerned to start off with. But at the same time, the Simpsons knew that this was out of character for Ebony, so it was a bit of a tough situation. After speaking to the police, Peter called around all of Ebony's friends and associates to see if anyone knew where she was. He hoped that another mum had given her a lift or something, but unfortunately nobody knew where she was. He was becoming more and more terrified with each phone call he made as the adrenaline surged through his body. Ebony Simpson was described as a striking young girl. She was gentle, kind and had many
1: friends. When the police arrived, they asked the standard questions. Had there been any arguments in the house? The implication being that perhaps Ebony had run away. Peter was sure that this was not something Ebony would do. He was getting pretty frustrated at the line of questioning, which seemed to focus in on him. Christine ran to the bus stop to see if she could find Ebony, but she wasn't there. More police arrived at the Simpson home and began searching Ebony's room. They took Peter's fingerprints as well as fingerprinting the rest of the house. Peter felt as though he was being treated as a suspect. We know that the police always start at the closest people to the victim, but it's understandable how Peter was upset by this. At the same time that police searched the house, Christine was wading through a creek near the house looking for her daughter. She searched everywhere she could think of
2: and she didn't want to stop. At around 6pm, Peter called Christine's sister, his sisters-in-law, Margaret and Alison, to let them know the news. He was concerned that they would find out about the disappearance from the news if he didn't tell them first. As soon as they found out their niece was missing, they got ready to make the hour-long drive from Penrith to Bargo. Police, SES workers, the fire brigade and local people were helping in the search for the missing nine-year-old. The dog squad was also in attendance to help with the search, as well as a helicopter to scope out the vast land. The phone was tapped in case a kidnapper called to demand a ransom.
1: At around 8.30pm, a teenager approached a group of searchers to see what was going on and heard that a little girl, Ebony Simpson, had gone missing. He realised that he had actually seen Ebony walking home that afternoon, as well as a car on the side of the road not far from where she was walking. The boy was pointed in the direction of police officers to tell them of his sighting. He stated that he had been driving a car with his brother and that they had seen Ebony walking along the road. As they had driven a bit further up the road, they noticed a dirty-looking yellow car on the side of the road with both its bonnet and boot open. There was a man leaning into the front of the car. The boys took note that the car was a Mazda 808. And that's great that they knew the type
2: of car as well. I know, that's pretty rare as well,
1: that a person would just know just from looking at it and actually remember. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think they were sort of car people, so it was, yeah. Good on them. Back at the house, Peter was getting agitated. He wanted to go out and join everyone, searching for his daughter, but the police wouldn't let him go. They needed to continue to question him. Finally, at 10pm... Peter was allowed to join Christine and go out looking for their daughter. Together they searched the local school for a second time as well as a number of bins. They continued to search until the next morning. At 5am on the 20th of August, SES workers and police began to plan their search for the day, which would begin at 8am. They would begin at Bargo Road, where Ebony was last spotted by the two boys and would spread out from there. At the same time, the search was to take place. The Simpson family was to be interviewed about the private
1: circumstances of their family. When police asked Christine during her interview about Ebony's character, she was described as sensible, strong and easy-natured. She revealed that just days before Ebony had gone missing, she had had a stranger danger talk at school, which the two of them had then discussed that night at home. Christine had told Ebony that while you should never be rude to strangers who are being friendly, you have to be sensible. She was sure to tell Ebony if a stranger ever approached her, she should be comfortable to come and tell her mother. Police asked Christine if she had seen anybody in the area recently that seemed out of place, and someone did come to mind. One day the week before, when Christine was picking Ebony up from the bus stop, she'd noticed a cream or yellow car with its bonnet open on the side of the road. She had thought the car looked as though it had broken down. She noticed a man peering into the bonnet. And she definitely noticed this because the bonnet actually opened the opposite way of most bonnets.
2: On the way home, after she had met Ebony, she saw that the man had managed to get his car started and was off on his way. When asked, Christine described the man as 18 to 20 years old, medium build, shoulder-length mousy brown hair, and perhaps a moustache. She had noticed that he was leaning over the bonnet, revving the car repeatedly, and at the same time glancing down at the bus stop. As soon as Ebony got off the bus, he jumped in his car and drove off. Later that night, three constables were discussing Christine's description of the car she had seen near the bus stop when they noticed a similar one parked under some trees near where they were standing. It was among the cars of people who were helping with the search for Ebony. It was a Mazda 808. The constables took down the car's registration number and went to the Picton Police
1: Station to look up the background of whoever owned the car. Police discovered that the car belonged to a man named Andrew Peter Garforth, who was an unemployed labourer. He had a de facto wife, Denise, and had children, one of which was Denise's from a previous partner, and also they had a child, which was Andrew's. Garforth had been a member of the search party for Ebony, Police were concerned that for the age and make of his car, as well as the dusty environment, it was far cleaner than it should have been. Garforth also had a criminal history which included 76 convictions. Most of his convictions related to theft and driving misdemeanours. He also had some outstanding warrants for his involvement with drugs. When Andrew Garforth and a friend returned to his Mazda 808, they were met by police who wanted to ask him some questions. Police took Garforth to the station.
2: While Garforth was occupied at the station with the police, Christine and Peter were taken to have a look at the Mazda 808 to see if it could be the same car that Christine had seen earlier in the week. She believed it was possibly the same car. Like the car she had seen, the bonnet opened backwards and it was yellow. Following this, one of the police officers, Inspector Bailey, arranged for the Mazda to be taken to the police station for further examination. At 5.30pm that afternoon, crime scene examiner Constable Wayne Day began a detailed search of Garforth's car. Initially, police were just planning on taking some photos of the car to show people an example of what type of car was seen in the area. But when they compared an identikit that Christine had assisted with To Garthorth, the similarities were just too great.
1: At the same time that Garthorth's car was being searched, police decided to search his home. Constable Berry had been sent to seize any soiled clothing. He collected a pair of blue jeans, black tracksuit pants, blue overalls, two bath towels, as well as a set of sheets. Police decided that Garforth looked enough like Christine's identikit and the descriptions given that they would detain him as a suspect. When the media released an image of the car police were looking for on the news, a neighbour of the Simpsons, Iris Proctor, realised that she had seen that car travelling slowly up and down the street on the day Ebony went missing. She remembered that as she had been working in the paddocks, she had heard the voices of a man and a little girl, although she had thought she might have been imagining it at the time. She did call the police to report this. While crime scene examiner Wayne Day was inspecting the boot of Garforth's car, he noticed some red stains, which he thought could potentially be blood. He tested them with a haemoglobin test strip and it came back positive.
2: At 8pm, detectives began interviewing Garforth. He was first cautioned and read his rights before police inquired about his whereabouts at the time that Ebony had disappeared. He stated that he had watched TV at home for a good portion of the day before heading into town to open up a membership at the video store and borrow some movies. He said he then went to the hardware store to get some materials to fix the grill of his car. He maintained that he had nothing to do with Ebony's disappearance, even stating, Shit, I even went and helped look for her. Why would I do that if I took her? He denied that the sightings of a man on Arena Road with a Mazda 808 were him, stating that he hadn't been on Arena Road. He stated that the blood that had been found in the boot of his car had come from a sheep's carcass. Sadly, the blood wasn't the only chilling piece of evidence police found in the boot of Garforth's car. Right at the back of the boot, behind the wheel arc, was a small handprint of a child, made visible by the fingerprint expert dusting in the car. The position of the handprint, along with smears that appeared to have been made by small fingers, suggested that a child had been inside the boot of a car while the hatch had been
1: closed. At 10.41pm, detectives asked Garforth to run through his story again, hoping to catch him in a lie. He again stated that he had left his house at approximately 3.45pm that afternoon to go to the video store in Bargo. When police asked Garforth about the route he had taken to get home from the video store, he stated, I left the video store, drove back down Bargo Road and went left onto Arena Road. He then paused, as contrary to his prior statements, Garforth had just placed himself on the road from which Little Ebony went missing. Garforth continued, realising that he was caught. He said, The young girl was walking past the car. I grabbed her and put her in my boot. He explained how he had driven to a wildlife reserve with Ebony in the boot and after some time had thrown her into the dam.
2: Police wasted no time
1: heading straight to the
2: dam on the chance that Ebony was still alive. Garforth directed them to a dirt track in Wirrimbirra Sanctuary where they parked and rushed to the dam. By the time they got there, it was just after midnight. A police truck used its headlights to illuminate the dam. The first thing the police saw when the dam was lit up was a pink lunchbox floating on top of the dam. Sadly, this seemed to confirm Garforth's confession, which you can imagine for police. That would have been a horrible, horrible sight. Police noted footprints on the side of the dam. Police videotaped Garforth as he described what had happened. Police asked, Do you agree that you guided us to a point on the edge of the dam where you threw Ebony in? Garforth told detectives that the lunchbox had come out of Ebony's school bag, which he had weighed down with rocks and thrown into the dam. He explained how he had then thrown Ebony into the dam, swaying his arms back and forth to create momentum before
1: throwing her up into the air. Two rescue squad members... Constable Bill Morris and his partner decided that they couldn't risk putting off the search for ebony and volunteered to enter the icy cold dam. The men waded in and swept their arms through the water. After 20 minutes, chest deep in water, Constable Morris felt something strange. He brought it carefully up to the surface. It was ebony. Crime scene examiner Wayne Day checked quickly for signs of life, but there was nothing. Reportedly, there were more than a couple of police shedding a tear that night over the devastating discovery. While the crime scene examiner photographed Ebony's body and began his examination, Garforth was taken back to his house to collect the clothing he'd been wearing at the time of Ebony's murder. He was then taken back to the police station to commence another formal interview. It was decided that search coordinator Inspector Jim
2: Bailey and his partner would have the hard task of telling the Simpson family that Ebony had been murdered. At 4 am on Friday, the 21st of August, 1992, Christine was standing at her kitchen window when she saw a police car pull into the driveway. She scanned their faces for any sign of good news. She ran to them, Have you found her? They replied, Yes. Christine inquired, is she dead or alive? She's dead. She screamed and asked repeatedly, did they hurt her? Peter managed to stay strong, focusing on the fact that he needed to take care of Christine and his two sons. He would be able to break down later.
1: Reportedly, the thing that broke Christine the most in that moment was the fact that she was not allowed to hold her little girl one last time. The killer had been the last one to do that. Later that morning, on the 21st, as Garforth was led to the Picton Courthouse for his first appearance, the public began to scream at him. Keep looking over your shoulder, you bastard. Die, die, and hang the bastard. A crowd of nearly 200 people had gathered outside the courthouse to hurl abuse at the self confessed child killer. In the courthouse, police prosecutor Adam Sutton stated that after bundling Ebony into the boot of his car, Garforth had tied her hands behind her back with wire and sexually assaulted her. He then threw her into the dam while her feet and hands were still bound. The courtroom erupted with noise and anger and Garforth hung his head. He was remanded to reappear in court in October 1992. As time went on, more and more disturbing details of Ebony's ordeal were revealed. Details of
2: Garforth churning up the music in the car to full blast so that nobody could hear the little girl screaming, how she pled with Garforth for 15 minutes to please let her go. The details were as heartbreaking as they were intensely angering. Unable to work with the grief they were experiencing, the Simpson family quickly found themselves doing it tough financially. Life was a blur for both Peter and Christine who pondered how this safe space they had bought to raise their family had become their own personal hell. Everything in the house reminded Christine of Ebony. The day before the funeral, the Simpson family were allowed to say a final goodbye to their beloved Ebony. The local funeral directors had done an amazing job preparing her for her funeral.
1: Ebony's funeral was held at St John's Anglican Church in Camden. There was a huge media presence there, along with at least 600 people who wanted to pay their respects to the little girl lost. Most of the funeral had been paid for by well-wishing locals who wanted to help the Simpsons out during their horrific ordeal. After the funeral was over, other people's lives went back to being relatively normal, while the Simpsons continued to grieve their loss. Counselling had been made available for everyone, including the police, rescuers, Ebony's peers and more but it had not been made available for Peter, Christine and his sons. The offers of help had died down and they were left to pick up the pieces of their lives with no professional guidance. The different grieving styles within the family highlighted the growing distance between them. Peter
2: decided to make some phone calls. He was angry. He wanted to know why his family had not been offered counselling. The grief counsellor that was assigned to them after that phone call, John Merrick, realised quickly that the counselling the family would need was beyond his capabilities. After thinking, he decided the best people for the Simpson family to talk to were a family that had been through the same thing. The family of Anita Cobby immediately came to mind. For those who don't know, Anita Cobby was a nurse who was abducted and brutally raped and murdered by five men in 1986. The day after they were contacted, Anita's parents, Gary and Grace Lynch, made the drive to Bargo to spend time with Peter and Christine.
1: They comforted them and listened to their story. Between the two families, a new idea was born and the first steps began taking place towards creating the Homicide Victims Support Group. Monthly meetings would be held for families of the murder victims. The wait for the trial of Andrew Garforth was excruciating for the Simpson family. They didn't know the exact details about what had happened to their daughter and rumours were swirling throughout the town. Finally, the court date came and it was harder than the Simpsons could have anticipated. They hadn't seen Garforth in person and it was a shock to them how normal he looked. At one stage during the court proceedings, Ebony's brother Tasman lunged towards Garforth before being stopped by a police officer. Christine broke down during the trial and listened to the details of her daughter's last minutes of life. The day of sentencing was Friday, the 9th of July, 1993. Supporters of the Simpson family arrived by the busload to hear the news. Justice Newman pointed out Andrew
2: Garforth's lack of remorse. He also stated, Ebony's last moments must have been spent in abject fear. This is not a case where his intention was to cause grievous bodily harm to his victim. His intention was to kill. Garforth was given the maximum sentence of life imprisonment, never to be released. When Peter Simpson was approached by the media after the verdict was read, he said, I'd like to say I'm happy with the decision. It's taken nearly 11 months to see justice served, And this is the best outcome we could possibly hope for under the present legal system in the state of New South Wales in 1993. The fact remains, Ebony Simpson got the death sentence, the Simpson family got the life sentence, and Garforth got bed and breakfast. The murderer has been given the very minimum he deserves, a life sentence. He has shown no remorse, no shame and no feeling. This man has no soul. Learning to live without ebony is like learning to live with an amputation. You never get a limb back, you just learn to live without it. Our life is like a jigsaw puzzle with one piece always missing. No, this murderer should never be allowed back into society ever again under any circumstance. This man has a lot to answer for. Even though the trial is over, for most people, for the Simpson family... It is just the tip of the iceberg.
1: Garforth repeatedly tried to appeal his sentence over the next year, but luckily it was upheld. Sadly, the marriage of Christine and Peter Simpson could not withstand the intense grieving that came with losing their much-loved daughter. In 1997, after 27 years of marriage, they made the difficult decision to divorce. They sold the farm and packed up and separated their lives. Today Christine runs an art gallery and cafe with her new partner and the couple still work hard to address the issues with the treatment of victims in Australia in Ebony's memory. Peter is still actively involved with the Homicide Victim Support Group. Zach and Tasman have grown up and created their own lives. Christine and Peter Simpson made a huge change in their fight for better understanding of the financial and emotional needs of family touched by murder. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the True Crime
2: Sisters podcast. Our thoughts go out to Ebony's family and loved ones. We hope you join us next week for a new episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you guys and please stay safe.